0: Hello, and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am, as always, the one and only Garrett Ashley Mullet. Thank you for tuning in today. We are going to talk about, in this episode, three books that I just finished up this week. But before we get into those, I want to talk about yesterday morning, something really exciting that happened. And that was the first... Episode of the On the Rocks podcast was recorded by Micah Hirschberger and myself. Micah Hirschberger is my first cousin on my dad's side. His mother is one of my dad's younger sisters. And Micah and I, for several years now, uh, going back to, I don't know, maybe 2010, have been collaborating on writing. Before On the Rocks blog was a thing, we exchanged back and forth copies of what we were working on as far as uh, fictional uh, fantasy novels and gave some feedback to one another and gave some encouragement to one another. And then in 2015, we started On the Rocks blog with another first cousin of ours, Marshall Mullet, and we... You have been writing at On The Rocks blog for five years now, and we don't necessarily write content every week. We don't necessarily even write content every month. There have been periods where we're just dry, right, or we're busy. We're busy with life or just the inspiration hasn't struck And so nothing gets written, nothing gets published for a while. But we've got this blog, and what the original impetus was for starting the blog was to speak to the political and social questions of our day from the Christian worldview, from the biblical worldview, unapologetically incorporating apologetics into these uh, contentious debates, and not, you know, descending into chaos and uh, acrimony, but trying to stay above the, you know, bitter kind of rhetoric that so often colors these discussions, trying to not be purely secular in the way that we approach these things. I mean, sometimes it might just be personal preference. It might be just, you know, a gut feeling that this is the right thing to do here. But so many of the political issues and and social issues that we are facing are really not, first and foremost, political issues. They're first and foremost, spiritual issues. They're first and foremost issues of worldview and of theology and of, you know, how do we believe that God set this whole thing up. How does God creating us in his image impact the way that we treat one another and impact the way that we relate to him and the way that we organize, et cetera, et cetera. And so we started this blog and five years on, we're still going, we're still publishing content now and then. And yesterday morning, we recorded our first ever podcast. And I'm really excited about that. Now having done about 50 of these solo project podcasts myself, each of them about an hour long for the past two years, it uh, has been recommended to me many, many times now from just about everybody that it would be a benefit to my commentary to have someone as a co-host, to have someone else that is on the podcast with me, somebody that I'm being conversational with, somebody that I'm talking with and bouncing ideas off of, somebody who's questioning me, somebody who's challenging me, somebody who's conversational, you know. And and so Micah has been that person in my writing process for several years, and it it works in a natural sort of a way that we would have a rapport and we would have a, a good conversational style to our podcast like we did yesterday. We, we recorded it over Zoom. Uh, actually, he called me up or I called him. He messaged me and said, do you have time for a call? And so I called him. He says, so how do we do this? Technically, I said, I don't know. And so as I'm on the phone with him, I typed in to DuckDuckGo, you know, how do you record a podcast with more than one person? remotely. And the first result that came up recommended about five or six different options, most of which had subscription fees or you know, one-time payment that you have to make that uh, allows you to record. But Zoom was on the list as well. And I know that Zoom is mostly free. And so sure enough, that's what we did. We used Zoom. I started a Zoom meeting. I invited him to the Zoom meeting. We both recorded. He recorded on his end. I recorded on my end. Each of us got all of it, and then that way, if there's any kind of a mix-up where the file gets corrupted or just didn't turn out right or whatever, each of us has a copy of the file. And so we did that, and it worked out really, really well. There's some things to improve, which is a good thing. I mean, that's not bad. That's not fatal. There are some tweaks that we want to make for future episodes, but it went really, really well, I think, for the first time of doing it. Micah is more organized than I am naturally inclined to be. And so he brings a kind of uh, structure to the podcast experience that I just very often don't. I I don't often think in terms of organizing and structuring everything, I just kind of want to organically farm these ideas out of my noggin and uh, and deliver them up to you. So, so I think the combination of me being more organic and him being more structured and, and more organized, I think that combination of traits works really well. And so you should check it out. I would encourage you, if you enjoy this podcast, you may enjoy as much or more the podcast On the Rocks, and uh, we might need to do some tweaking with the name because when you search on the rocks, about five different options come up on Anchor.fm, the app on my phone, anyways, and none of them are the correct one. And those all are probably, you know, more established. They've been in the queue or, or on the database for longer than on the Rocks Blogs podcast has been. So we might need to tweak that a little bit and find a way to differentiate the name of the podcast so that people can find it and uh, and know which one we are. But uh, check it out and give it a listen, and I think you'll very much enjoy it. But, you know, it's interesting. I, I had asked a number of people over the past few months to give me some feedback on how the podcast that I'm recording right now, this podcast, The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, how it was and what was working and what could be better and uh, what did they like and what did they not like. And consistently the feedback I got was it would be good for you to have a co-host. It would be good for you to to do that. And so you know, initially Micah was one of the persons that had given this recommendation and he talked with me a little bit about, audience engagement. And uh I I'll be completely honest with you, I kind of bristled at his feedback in particular because him being more organized and more comprehensive, he's not gonna just say, you know, on a whim, uh, in, in one short statement, I think it would really benefit you to have a co-host. Like some people did. Some people just said it that simply and that was kind of that was it. But Micah wanted to say okay, here's why and here's some of the weaknesses in the way that you're doing this right now. And it's just, it's not very engaging. And it's you talking for a full hour at a stretch. And some people are going to like that. A lot of people are going to tune out because that's a long time to just listen to one person talking. And so your pace needs to be picked up. You need to work on audience engagement. That's not the same thing as entertainment. And, and you, you would benefit from having somebody else on your podcast to kind of keep it uh, lively, keep it conversational. And so I, I reacted kind of bristly to that initially. I didn't like that feedback because I kind of like just doing this thing myself, doing doing the solo thing and uh, and not really worrying about structure, not worrying about being organized and, and not worrying over much about um, having to plan it on the front end. I kind of like just doing it, jump in, do it. And I was worried, I think, with the feedback I got from him in particular, that yeah, maybe this just isn't going to work, right? Maybe, maybe my podcasting thing is just tilting at windmills. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the audience engagement. I'm not getting people to subscribe and follow and comment and reply and and all of that, because it's just not very good, right? And, and maybe it's just not very good because I'm just not going to be any good at this, whether I want to be good at it or not. And so I didn't like that, and it made me just feel frustrated and, I guess, irritated and all of that. But I kind of, I, I had to take myself in hand a little bit and say, okay, you know what? Let me ask seven or eight people. Let me just compare and contrast the feedback I get from different people. I know what I like to listen to. I don't mind, listening to one person talking at a stretch for an hour straight. I do listen to, on a regular basis, the guys over at Daily Wire. I've I've talked about that before. I don't mind listening to Ben Shapiro talk for an hour. If I'm on my way to work or if I'm eating my lunch or if I'm home working on laundry, I don't mind listening to Michael Knowles or Andrew Clavin or Matt Walsh talk for an hour at a stretch. And actually, you know, sometimes the way that they organize their content is kind of off-putting, it's, it's kind of artificial, and it, and it kind of breaks things up too much, and maybe that works for most people, it doesn't necessarily work for me, and I kind of wish that they would speak more organically, and just talk from the heart, and just talk, you know, naturally as things flow, and so I still feel that there are people out there that are like me in that regard who like listening to those people and they'll like listening to me as well. And so I don't want to completely abandon this solo project. I think it's still beneficial. I think it's still worthwhile. But I realized as I, you know, got the feedback from a number of people that I did, I need to just, I need to calm down. I need to take a step back. I need to think about this objectively. Maybe just maybe you could benefit from trying that out, right? If people are giving you this advice, see if you can get a co-host, see if you can get somebody to do this with you. Maybe just try it out and see if it, Work. See if that is better, and and maybe even your solo project ends up being better for having tried the, you know, team uh, sport approach to this. And so, you know, that's what we did yesterday. We did the team sport approach to this. And I I really enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it. It took a lot of pressure off of me. I feel like things were more organized. And as I listened back through the podcast after it was uh, published, you know, Micah did the editing. He did the publishing. He's, you know, going to be the host of On The Rock's podcast. Yeah, I listened to it a couple of times, and I just thought, you know, this is really this is, this is engaging. This is enjoyable. And it is more enjoyable than just me talking for an hour straight. I think that even me coming back to this work, this solo project, will be more engaging too. And so what I want to try and do is I want to try and bounce back and forth. We're going to do the On the Rocks podcast once a week. We're going to shoot for Saturday morning, having our episodes up to where we can talk about the week's uh, current events and, and not just the current events, but also, you know, let's talk about these current events in light of our Christian worldview. Let's talk about these current events in light of what we've read of history and philosophy and theology and, and all of this. And let's integrate the current events into our worldview and make sure we're understanding them rightly. And so we're going to do that once a week, but I don't just want to record podcasts once a week. I'd like to record more Often than that, and I'd like to get better and better at it. I'd like to get better at naturally speaking off the cuff, but also being organized. And so here we are. Here I am. We'll see. You know, I think already the podcast episodes that I've recorded in the course of this season. This is season three now of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. And I would say, even as this season has gone on, it has gotten better than it was at the beginning. It's gotten far better than it was in Season 2, far, far better than it was in Season 1. You know, Season 1, I started out and I had downloaded the app to my phone and I just recorded on my phone as I was driving. And it picked up a lot of road noise. It wasn't really good audio quality. It wasn't, it wasn't good, right? I mean, some of the things that I was saying, a lot of the things that I was saying were probably worthwhile and they were fine, but the audio quality was a, it was a killer. That was a uh, fatal flaw in it being listenable. You know, as I went on, I got a little cheap microphone that I ordered on Amazon, $30, a little cheap Chinese microphone, and it did better. And so then I start listening to myself uh, with the microphone versus listening to me with having recorded on my smartphone, and it's like, man, this is a lot better. This is a lot more enjoyable for me. And there's no bias on my part as far as you know, agreeing more with you know this episode versus that episode. I agree with all of it because I said it. I, I realize and I recognize audio quality does make a difference. You fast forward to season three, and now I've gotten the hang of this Resolve, uh, DaVinci Resolve, uh, editing software on my computer, and so I record the audio directly to my computer with a much better microphone still because I, I traded in that $30 El Cheapo Chinese microphone for a Blue Yeti, I record straight to my computer, and then I uploaded the uh, audio files to DaVinci Resolve, and then I edit, and I edit out the uhs and the ums and the sneezing and the coughing and if children come in and they interrupt or, you know, whatever. You know, if I stumble over my words and I say something really dumb and it's like, no, that wasn't correct, I can just redo that and it's great, right? It's much better. It's a much more polished, finished, refined product. And so, you know, it's it's gotten better. And now what I want to see is, experimentally, I want to see if it gets better still as I'm learning to podcast with a co-host. And what I want to try Next, I think the next level thing is going to be having guests. You know, not, you know, I think what Micah and I are planning to do is be co hosts of On the Rocks, but, you know, I want to have guests, people that I know, uh, call in and we'll do the Zoom call thing and we'll just have them on for an episode. You know, maybe I'll have some of those guests on just solo here on The Garrett Ashley Muller Show. Maybe we'll have some of them on the uh, On the Rocks podcast but you know i think this is a this is a good thing right this is growth this is forward movement this is not just growth as far as you know this one little thing that i'm trying to learn how to do well this podcasting thing this is personal growth because these are new things that i'm trying it is, I think, making me a better communicator. It is making me be more intentional about the things that I say. And does that make sense? And is that true? And am I being clear? And am I saying things that are helpful to people or am I just emoting, et cetera, et cetera? So stay tuned, listen in, pay attention as uh, this evolves because I'm really excited that there is the potential to gain these capabilities. I think that there's a need for communicators are going to articulate the right values and the right perspective and the right attitude and the right beliefs and the right worldview so that we can live in peace, so that we can aspire to live a quiet life working with our hands and minding our own business and and how, what does it look like what is my own business and what is your business i don't want to be negligent of my business you know when things actually are my responsibility i also don't want to be intrusive and in a busybody when things are rightly someone else's business and so let's work on figuring out where the dividing lines are between these things so that we can live in peace you know both peace with one another and also peace with god and also internal peace right we're not anxious, we're not uptight, we're not angry, we're not frustrated, we're not, you know, feeling agitated that we're missing it, or that we're failing, or we're never going to succeed, or whatever. You know, let's get these ideas correct, and let's double check our math, and let's let's be intentional about this so that we have peace, and genuine peace, and meaningful peace, and a lasting peace. So anyway, enough about that. I told you we were going to talk about Three audiobooks I've just here recently finished, so let's get into that, shall we? We'll get into, first and foremost, The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. I've talked a little bit about The Fairy Queen while I was still reading it, and I did an episode here uh, a couple of weeks back called Audiobooks where I mentioned that that was in my queue, and I mentioned that I was having a hard time getting into The Fairy Queen. Now, I can give you a little bit of an update. Now that I've finished The Fairy Queen, I, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I kind of tuned it out for most of the book. It was kind of just noise in the background that it didn't make a lot of sense to me, right? And And the more that I tuned it out, the less sense that it made and the more I tuned it out, because it didn't make sense. I did notice, though, and it was probably the case from the beginning of the book, but, again, I wasn't paying close enough attention I was tuning it out, but especially towards the end of the book, as I'm realizing this is wrapping up, and I'm just kind of curious, like, okay... Now, while supplies last, I should pay attention before this is over, at least a little bit, and see if maybe maybe if a little more attention is paid to it, it'll, it'll start to click and make sense. Some of the very end of the Fairy Queen is especially obviously violent and sexual. And that is to say that, you know, all this talk of media today, movies and TV shows and, and all of this you know, being so chock full of sex and violence, and things weren't that way when I was a kid, and da-da-da-da, you know, we had standards. Read The Fairy Queen. I, I'm interested to, to see what people who are unfamiliar with it come away thinking, because it is a classical work of literature. It was actually the first book of poetry written in modern English, and it was the last of the great medieval style literature. It is a defense of chivalry, at the same time that Cervantes is writing his ridicule of chivalry in the form of Don Quixote. But Edmund Spencer is lauded by C. S. Lewis, who says that to read Spencer is to increase in mental and spiritual health. And so I I find it interesting <laughs> that as I'm reading The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, and I'm getting through the book, and I'm further and further along, and I'm there towards the very end. There's a lot of people fighting. There's a lot of, you know, fairly graphic descriptions of people being disemboweled or having their heads cloven to or having all of their blood spilled out on the ground or, you know, being stabbed or or whatever, bashed in the face. There's a fair amount of that. And, uh, And also there's a fair amount of nudity, there's a fair amount of description of breasts and thighs and things like that, and, and things that are described poetically rather than explicitly, but you still get the point because it's being described poetically, and, and you kind of know, you know, the general area that they were describing, and so you're like, oh, okay, that is that. I, I, hmm, okay. There's definitely references to sex in The Fairy Queen, and so, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me because this book is, it's written in a poetic way, and it's written in an in an allegorical defense of uh, virtue sort of a way, but yet there is sex and violence. And so how how does that make sense? Well, I think what throws a lot of people for a loop on questions like this or on media like this is the fact that portraying sex and violence is not necessarily the same thing as gratuitously portraying them or portraying them in an immoral way. And I'll explain what I mean by that you open your bible to genesis and you don't get very far in before you see that adam and his wife were naked in the garden and they were unashamed so they were naked in the garden and we're not given a lot of descriptive uh, detail as to you know what their various parts looked like and how shapely they were or what color or whatever you know we don't need that detail we're not given that detail but we do know quite bluntly they were naked in the garden and they were unashamed of it. And so that's interesting. We start off the book like that, and then you fast forward, and you get, after the fall, and after they're ejected from Eden, you have the first generation after Adam and Eve with one brother murdering the other brother. You get Cain killing Abel. He he kills him with rocks. And so you have violence. You have deadly violence. You have murder within the first few chapters of Genesis. And then you fast forward, to Genesis chapter 6 and the whole world is filled with violence. And God is so upset about this because this was not the original plan and intent. He resolves to destroy all life on earth with a flood. And then he decides, you know what? Noah is blameless in his generation. And so I'm going to save Noah and his family and two of every living creature on the ark. And everybody else is going to perish because the earth is filled with violence. And I regret that I even made man if this is the way man is going to be. So within a very few short chapters of Genesis, we have murder. We have violence. uh, You have nakedness. You know, as you continue on through the book, we have, have people being raped. We have People, you know, being uh, taken into a harem. You know, you you get Abram's wife Sarai. You know, they go into Egypt, and he says, "Tell everyone that you're my sister," which is technically true because she is his half sister. And what happens as a result is exactly what he was anticipating would happen when he told her, "Tell them you're my sister." He was nervous that the Egyptians were going to see that she was very beautiful, and they would kill him they would murder him so that they could take her so he says well rather than that right you know because i kind of like not dying not being murdered just tell everybody that you're my sister well that plan results in her being taken but him not being murdered and because the egyptians think that abram is her brother they want to curry favor with him and so they treat him very well they give him gifts they're very hospitable they don't murder him But Sarai is taken into the harem of the Pharaoh. And before anything can happen, God appears to or speaks to Pharaoh and tells him in no uncertain terms, you had better let Sarai go back to Abram because Sarai is Abram's wife. And so you've got, you know, this really, really scandalous situation going on. You fast forward and you've got all of these stories, right? All these stories of Lot and his two daughters. His two daughters get him drunk so that they can sleep with him, so that they can get pregnant by their father, because their husbands died in Sodom, when God destroyed Sodom, because Sodom was just completely wicked, completely depraved, absolutely corrupt. That's not appropriate. But then again, it it must be, because all Scripture is God-breathed and suitable for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, all scriptures God breathed, that must mean that even the scriptures that talk about Adam and Eve being naked in the garden, that talk about Cain killing Abel, that talk about all of these things that happened that were not good, that, I mean, the, these behaviors that were engaged that were not necessarily always good, all of that is suitable for instruction unto righteousness. Consider, too, you know, speaking of poetry, and this could be part of what inspired Edmund Spencer to write The Fairy Queen and to include poetic descriptions of, um, you know, Private parts, <laughs> uh, you know, it could be part of what inspired him to describe in passing sex. You know, you consider the Song of Songs written by Solomon in the Old Testament, and some people who I think are very uncomfortable with sex dismiss the Song of Songs as being entirely allegorical. It's entirely a picture of Christ's relationship with the church, and I th- I think no, 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 no. God made sex. Sex is a good gift from God. It's meant to be within a certain context, but there's nothing shameful about a man and his wife having sex. And so, when we read in Song of Songs poetic descriptions of sex acts and of you know compliments being paid to uh, you know the wife by her husband or to the husband by the wife, things being described, it's it's not necessary that we dismiss all of that as allegorical. We say, "Oh, well, no, no, that's not that's not about sex. That's uh, yeah, no." That's not about what, what it obviously is about. You know, that's us trying to be holier than God, I think. And we should be very, very careful about that. And we should be careful that we're not indulging in prurient desires and being foolish. But if it's in there, if it's in the text, then it does merit examination. It does merit consideration because we should be asking ourselves, okay, if all scriptures God-breathed and suitable for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness, then what is this book in here for? What is this chapter in here for? What is this verse in here for? What does it mean? And we may not have always satisfactory answers. We might not necessarily know, but the glory is in the struggle. So Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, you know, maybe someday I will read it again and I'll better understand it. Maybe I'll read a synopsis and then I'll read it again and then I'll I'll better understand it. Maybe I should slow it down and, and Not listen to it at such a quick speed that could have been part of my problem. But uh, I did just finish that. It was very beautifully written, if hard to follow, all the same. The next book that I finished this week is Marxism by Thomas Sowell. And that was much easier for me to follow. It was not poetic. It was historical, and it was economical, and it was political. In Thomas Sowell, he talks about not only what is Marxist theory, but also where does it come from. And also, how has it been implemented? And also, what is it to be compared and contrasted with in the form of capitalism? And also, who was Karl Marx? And where did he come from? And what were his influences? And what was his life like? And what were his relationships with other people like? And I I would say of all those things that were covered in Marxism by Thomas Sowell, the last Of those at the tail end of the book was the most interesting to me and I say that because I didn't realize that Karl Marx was the son of a wealthy industrialist I didn't know that and I think that a lot of people don't realize that it's interesting because the way Thomas Sowell describes Marx Marx was always for his whole adult life living beyond his means he and his wife they were always living a lavish lifestyle beyond what they were actually bringing in in revenue and he was constantly relying on other people to bail him out because he wasn't being responsible he wasn't being frugal he wasn't being wise with his money and he didn't care to be right he had grown up in a wealthy family his dad had bailed him out his dad had constantly been putting him through schooling and trying to shepherd him along and it's pretty obvious that marx resented that he didn't like that and that he felt entitled, very much so, to his father's wealth. And his economic theory, his political theory, really did stem from that attitude he had in his personal relationship with his father, his his relationship with other people. He was a very domineering man, apparently, and wanted everyone to do things and think things the way that He did them and thought them. He wanted to walk into any group and be the guy in charge all of a sudden. And that didn't necessarily mean that he knew what he was doing, but he wanted things to be the way that he wanted things to be. He thought he knew best. And you fast forward to today, and we've got Antifa. And Antifa very often is comprised of authoritarian Marxists. Now, that's not a slander. That's not me being dramatic. That's not an exaggeration. That is literally the case. The anti-fascists are very often authoritarian Marxists. They are authoritarian communists who don't just want to be against fascism, quote-unquote. They term fascism anything in the American tradition and the current political structure which stands between them and realizing their vision of a communist utopia, in this country and around the world. It's a globalist scheme. And before they can make it go global, they've gotta make it go national. And so they're very much against nationalism. They're very much against the free market. They're very much against these constitutional uh, rights and liberties that we have as citizens of this country. And so they hate anybody that is for America. They hate anybody that stands in their way. And so they especially hate Donald Trump because Donald Trump has stood up to them and he's contradicted them and he's advanced a competing narrative in a compelling way. And so the Antifa crowd, a lot of them are soy boys. A lot of them are butch women. A lot of them are very gender fluid. Is this a man? Is this a woman? Uh, Antifa's literature, when it comes to recruiting, specifically advises avoiding alpha males and very feminine women. Don't go for the pretty girl. Don't go for the manly man. Go for the the guy who can't grow a beard to save his life. Go for the girl who maybe is a girl, but maybe is a boy actually. You know, go for the, the people that have been living in their parents' basement their entire lives and that are feeling frustrated and they're feeling anxious, and they're feeling resentful of the system, and they blame the system for their lack of achievement, their lack of having made something of themselves at this point. Go for those people because they're going to latch on to the sense of purpose and belonging that they get from joining Antifa, and they will be zealous in advancing the cause. And so that's what you see. You see black-clad, faces covered, you know, uh, social outcasts and and misfits who make up the Antifa crowd. And you see them when they square off, they're squaring off against either A, Proud Boys, who very often are the macho guys that uh, Antifa intentionally tries to avoid recruiting. They're squaring off against elderly people who support Trump and they just want to peacefully march and make it known that they support Trump. Trump, and that there are a lot of Americans that support Trump, and not so much just Trump, but the America that they grew up with, the America that they have believed this country was meant to be. So the Antifa crowd, they assault those people, they harass them, they hit them, they push them, they punch them, they throw them to the ground, they kick them in the head, they throw fireworks at them, they threaten them, they they do everything they can to terrorize those people. And In that way, I think they're very much a reflection of who Karl Marx was. Karl Marx was domineering and entitled, and he didn't live within his means. And so, of course, he embraced an idea of redistributing wealth. Of course, he didn't want to let on over much that he didn't know what he was talking about. Of course, he was trying to compensate for the fact that he was a mooch. He was kind of a, he was a good for nothing. He was trying to compensate for that by pretending at being about saving the whole world. You know, it reminds me of a a Dr. Jordan Peterson quote where he says, before you set out to criticize the world, clean your room, make your bed. You know, you you think that you can change the world by telling the world how it's got to be and you're going to criticize everybody else out there in society. The problem's out there. It's not in here. Try making your bed consistently every morning when you very first get up. Try picking things up off the floor. Try putting your clothes away. Try organizing your desk. Try some simple basic things like that to put your little part of the world in order and see how difficult it is. And maybe, just maybe, for one, you'll make the world a better place by taking care of your stuff. And maybe, just maybe, you'll set a good example for other people that will actually make a difference. And maybe, just maybe, you'll have some humility because you'll realize it's a little more complicated than you're giving it credit for when you just jump in and you start telling everybody, well, this is what's wrong with you and 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 you. And you haven't even started on what you do have control over. You want everybody else to do it for you. Well, it just doesn't work that way, Antifa. And it just doesn't work that way, Karl Marx. You're self-absorbed and you're you're foolish. You're foolish and you're dangerous. Your folly is, is not inane and innocuous, and it doesn't just hurt you, it's hurting other people. But Thomas Sowell, great book, not a very long read. Marxism is worth picking up if you want to understand better this ideology, which has been responsible for more human suffering and death in the 21st century than any other cause. I mean, with the exception of obviously old age. I mean, everybody died of old age in the 21st century that didn't die of of murder and disease and all of that. But communists killed tens of millions of people in Russia, in China, in every country that Russia and China, you know, inserted themselves into. They caused all kinds of proxy wars, famines, starvation, you know, cultural purges, cultural revolution, gulags, all of that wore all of it because they were hell-bent on their vision of the world and the economy and how to run your life becoming the, the dominant vision and you know no no competitors allowed so we should be wise about it we should be wise as serpents harmless as doves but we should be willing and ready to resist this onslaught of marxist thinking marxist ideology black lives matter by the way a lot of people don't realize it was founded by, in their own words, trained Marxists. And so what does that mean, right? We hear that. What does it mean that they are trained Marxists? What, what are some things that we should be looking out for in the literature and the activities and the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter that would prove that that means something? It obviously means something to the founders of Black Lives Matter, Because why else would they say we are actually trained Marxists? Why else would they take pictures with Nicolas Maduro, the communist dictator of Venezuela, who's run that country into the ground to the point where they went from the preeminent economy in South America, oil-rich, resource-rich, intelligent, capable people, wealthy, prosperous people, they went from that to breadlines and people eating dogs and cats, violence in the streets and oppression. And yet we've got the founders of Black Lives Matter wanting to take pictures and have a photo op and shake hands with and get cozy with Nicolas Maduro, who is responsible for that. You know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. So read Marxism if you have a chance. Read Thomas Paine in general if you have a chance. He's very uh, dry sometimes, but he's also very knowledgeable. He's very smart, very well-informed, and very informative. So next on the list of books that I finished this week is The Accidental Superpower by Steve Zihon. And this was a free read on Audible Plus. It was included in the Audible Prime, Audible Plus uh, subscription that I pay. I pay a certain amount every month. I get a credit once a month. And I also get access to all of their Audible Plus titles that that's a recent thing that they've come out with that I really like, and I've picked up a a fair number, I've picked up all the Thomas Sowell books that I listened to from that, a number of others as well, but The Accidental Superpower is from 2014, it was written in 2014, so before Trump, before Brexit was finalized, if memory serves, and before China really flexed its muscles like it has the past six years, uh, it was anticipated that China was going to make power plays and moves, but I don't think that Zihon necessarily anticipated to what extent, and maybe that's me speaking as an American who, you know, as Zihon puts it, I look at these things as Americans often do, overreacting and making a little bit too much of the bluster and the posturing of of foreign countries, Uh, or it could be that Zihon's got a little bit too rosy of a view of America's prospects, and he just didn't quite anticipate all of the factors that go into what makes America great, right? So, you know, to give a little bit of the story away, Steve Zihon believes that America is going to be the preeminent country on the world scene for the foreseeable future, I mean, for the next 30 years, at least, 40 years, if for no other reason than geography. So our geography, the fact that we are... Uh, you know, a transcontinental nation with navigable rivers aplenty, with uh, very favorable uh, landscapes and, and coastal regions and, and uh, shores for ports and harbors. All of that together, plus the minerals and resources, natural resources that we have inland, plus our economic stability, plus our political stability, all these things together. And our age, our demographics, right? We don't have an aging population problem the way that a number of developing nations do. Like Japan has a major problem on its hands. Russia has a major problem on its hands. China has a major problem on its hands. The European Union has a major problem on its hands. In terms of aging populations, declining birth rates, inverted Pyramids as far as people that are retiring and are going to need to be supported by a smaller and smaller workforce of working age people in terms of, uh, you know, there being enough people to maintain the infrastructure. That is not a problem that America has to the same extent. So America is going to continue to be preeminent. I don't know that I buy that theory. I don't know that I like that theory that America is great primarily or exclusively because of our geography. And and that isn't to say that Steve Zihon is necessarily saying that it's only because of geography, because he isn't. And yet, he very much is saying that is a primary driver and that geography is a limiting factor for all these other places. That's why they haven't done so well. I don't like that theory. I don't like that view. I think that it tries to explain away the fact that ideas matter, ideas have consequences. And our ideas are not necessarily a consequence of our geography. I mean, again, using Venezuela as an example, Venezuela was doing very, very well until socialism took over. You know, it's a nice country you got there. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it, AOC says in one of my favorite political memes ever. Yeah, she's got that creepy smile on her face, this wild-eyed look on her face. Venezuela Took a major dive not because its geography changed, but because they embraced socialism. You know, is somebody going to argue that they embraced socialism because of their geography? Mm, I don't buy it. I think it's probable that asymmetrical warfare, being what it is, and us being in a new Cold War as we are, that you know, communists from China and from Russia and from other places are going to try their damnedest to get america to break up because it is a power to beat if they can get us to turn on one another if they can get us so wrapped up in infighting that we splinter into several smaller nations then it's divide and rule it's easy to oppose us or it's easy to do whatever they want to do with us out of the way it might not be that they fight us it may not be that they try and conquer us it may just be that we are sidelined and we are no longer relevant to the questions of conquest and territorial expansion and hegemony and all that. So whatever I may agree with or disagree with in The Accidental Superpower, it was very, very interesting. It was very well-researched. Uh, it was very detailed. It was very comprehensive. Uh, he has a lot of information at his fingertips as far as the details of the historical reality in in many of the main regions of the world, or all of them, and he makes some very interesting, thought-provoking projections about what is coming down the pike, and he ends the book by saying, you know, if we're all still alive in 2040, you know, dismissing and putting off to the side questions of climate change, destroying the planet in 12 years, and it's all, you know, dying of, of extinction or whatever, if we're all still here in 2040, and if my projections did or didn't come true, you know, I'd love to sit down and chat with you about it. So follow up with me and he'll, he'll be 66 or something like that, he says. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because he's got all of this information. He's got all of this, this narrative. He's got all of this, these facts that are woven into this book and it's well-researched and it's, it's well-stated, it's well-written. And at the end of the day, I find it remarkable that for all the projections, for all of the historical telling for all the descriptions of these economic principles and and how geography helps us in America in a way that it doesn't help Mexico, in a way it doesn't help Canada. At the end of the day, he says, well, you know, maybe these things that I'm anticipating will come true will come true. Maybe they won't, right? A lot can happen. You know, it's it's a good reminder to all of us that no matter how much we analyze, this is a good reminder for me, what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, I think of the book of James where James advises us, he says, you know, listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will move to this city and live there for a year and work and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You know, you boast in your arrogance and this boasting is evil. Instead, you should say, God willing, we will live and do this without. And so that's what I want to say. I want to embrace that idea, even as I'm Trying to get better at planning, and I'm trying to get better at being a good steward. I'm trying to get better at being knowledgeable, getting wisdom, getting understanding, and and searching out mysteries. I want to be humble about all these things and not foolish, right? Uh, You know, arrogance is a kind of folly because it inflates our own importance in the grand scheme of things. Now, you can underestimate our importance in the grand scheme of things, and that's not wise either. But arrogance is a problem. It is a problem of wisdom. It lacks perspective. It lacks self-awareness, and it really does lack an understanding of how the universe and reality works. You know, instead of seeing ourselves at the center of the universe and the center of reality and everything revolves around us, we really need to see God at the center of all of this. He is the uncaused cause. He is the ultimate factor on which everything else depends. The breath of life is in our lungs because God sustains our our life. We exist in the first place, because God created us. We exist in this world because God created this world. All of these things are contingent on his good graces, his will, his sovereign uh, desire for us to inhabit this reality. So we do well to remember that, and that's why the proverb says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I want to remember that. I want to remember that as I'm making projections as I'm analyzing, as I'm trying to make sense of these things, to have the humility to recognize no matter how good my projections are, I might be wrong. I might be completely mistaken. No matter how much I think I understand, I could be misunderstanding. That kind of leads back to the topic we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, where I mentioned that I recorded yesterday morning with my cousin an episode of on the rocks podcast and i realized that maybe just maybe doing this as a team instead of it being uh, a lone wolf operation all the time maybe that makes for a more effective attempt more an effective endeavor more effective ambition and maybe we accomplish what we're trying to accomplish better together than if i'm just going it alone here and i think that would be good for us all to remember, you know, as I'm reading books, as you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to other things, you're listening to maybe some books yourself or some other podcasts or the news or your friends, your family, whatever. As we're doing that, we should have the humility to consider. Are we mistaken about some things? Double-check our math. Pray to ask God for wisdom. You know, ask God for wisdom for life so that we can make good decisions, so that we can speak things that are true that are relevant, that are helpful, that uh, honor God, that build one another up uh, for a good purpose. You know, we need to understand that we're here for a purpose and, uh, and we need to understand that other people are here for a purpose as well. And how do we spur them on to good deeds? How do we motivate them, encourage them, help them to not despair or lose heart or become fearful? You know, I've got six boys, six sons, Josiah, Elihu, Solomon, Daniel, Enoch, John, and I've got one daughter, Evelyn, and my wife, Lauren, and I, and these seven children, we are doing a number of things that are counterculture. We're doing a number of things which are different, which are nonconformist. And that is a good thing in many respects. And I want so much for my boys to not just blindly follow my example, but I want to set them a good example so that when they follow inadvertently or on purpose my example, It does the maximum good that it possibly can. It does the minimal harm. And so one of the things my wife and I were talking about it yesterday after Micah and I recorded our podcast episode for On the Rocks, I said to her, I want our children, when they're considering doing something, to not be afraid of looking silly. I want them to not be afraid putting themselves out there and appearing foolish or being mocked or being ridiculed. And I want them to not hold back from trying something just because they don't start out being very good at it. I want them to be willing to not be very good at it and to work at it and to endeavor and to, whether you want to say have the confidence or you want to say have the humility or both, to have the ability to look silly, right? Put my flaws out there. I have these flaws, whether people know about them or don't. And so what's the difference, right? I'm going to put my flaws out there. By trying this, people will see my shortcomings, and they'll know me better for them, Yeah, but they'll also see my strengths, right? I have these strengths, whether people know it or not, so I'm going to put myself out there. And they'll see the strengths. They'll see my weaknesses, and hopefully, 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 you know, we are are more beneficial to those around us. We honor God better by giving voice to our strengths and giving action to our strengths than we do dishonor or, or disserve others by putting our weaknesses on display. So anyway, with that, I mean, if you're somebody who you have some wild-haired notion that the world would be a better place if you did X, Y, or Z, but you're just really afraid to because you think you're going to get ridiculed for it. It's going to be silly that'll never work, or, you know, nobody else is doing that, or, you know, other people won't like it, or they'll feel threatened by it, they'll make fun of you, whatever. So what, right? Life is so short, and this is the time that you have. And if what you want to do is a good thing, Even if you're not going to be very skillful at it, why not? Why not do it, right? I mean, the people that would mock you, I mean, do you really want to be a slave to their opinion of you anyways? Do you really want to be beholden to, you know, whether they, you know, applaud you or don't applaud you? If they're malicious people, if they're vindictive or or mean-spirited people, then maybe you shouldn't care so much about what they think of you, whether good or ill. I mean, if they think really highly of you and they're just kind of awful people, is that going to be satisfying? I mean, is that is that really what you want? And if not, then maybe just press on anyways, and and maybe just maybe you press on, and they do make fun of you, but then you get better at it and you do well, and in the end you win them over, or don't. Who knows? But uh, I happen to believe that's a better way to live. It's a happier way to live. It's a healthier way to live. It's a holier way to live if you know, we're we're doing and being the things that God calls us to do and be about. I have to think that so much of the mess that we are in as a country, where people are just awful to each other. We're, we're dealing with censorship, we're dealing with constitutional crises, we're dealing with disrespect, we're dealing with people being assaulted, we're dealing with people being vulnerable to being recruited by Marxist organizations, you know, supposedly quote-unquote anti-fascist organizations. I have to believe so much of that is because people don't feel like they belong anywhere, they don't feel like they have a purpose, and they're so desperately hungry to feel like they have a purpose. They so desperately wanna belong somewhere And it's the same thing when it comes to gangs. You know, gangs in inner cities work on the same principle, where you've got a lot of these young men who grow up in a single home, and they grow up with no father, and their father either is off in prison, or he got killed, or he abandoned the family when they were young, and they grow up without fathers in the home, and their mother is not a father figure, and their school teachers, who are mostly women, are not father figures. And so they're looking for a pack. They're looking for a wolf pack to be a part of that protects them, that helps to feed them, that they can serve, that gives them a sense of purpose and belonging. And that's what the Santifa crowd is looking for as well. They're looking for purpose and belonging. Right. And so what we need to be about is we need to look for our, our sense of purpose and belonging in the right place. And then we need to model that, right? The, the world that is lost and Christless and godless and awful and filled with violence of all sorts, physical violence, spiritual violence, emotional violence, verbal violence, where people just tear each other down unless they can get what they want from them. And even then, you know, sometimes that's what they want from them, is they want the satisfaction of tearing somebody down and feeling superior, feeling empowered. You know, this world of people that are scared and angry and malicious really does need to see God's people live that sense of purpose and belonging out. They need to see the church live that sense of purpose and belonging out. They need to hear it on our lips. They need to see it in our lives, in every sphere. There really should not be any sphere that is untouched by the Christian worldview. So, read, study, converse, talk, dare, do Anyway, that's all for this episode. If you've listened this far, thank you so much for listening. Please hit subscribe if you haven't just yet. Reach out. If there's anything that I'm saying in this that uh, I'm mistaken on, fact check me. I'd love to be fact checked if I'm in fact needing checked. (laughs) And uh, if there's anything you're curious about, anything I said you'd like me to expand on, by all means... Reach out, let me know. If you've got questions, if you've got suggestions for topics for future episodes, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think. But if not, thank you for listening. Until next time, I am Garrett Ashley Mullet. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Thank you and God bless.